Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today on the Skype on the phone, I am talking to Zach Bissonnette, author of The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, Mass Delusion, and the Dark Side of Cute. It is a book, if you can't tell, about the rise and fall of Beanie Babies. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. Great book. I love the book, but also I love the title, and I am going to take every opportunity I can this afternoon to use the phrase Beanie Baby Bubble. So let's see how that goes. So I won't have to plug it as shamelessly as I was planning to, so that's good. Uh, I guess first question, uh, you know, how old are you today and how old were you when the Beanie Baby phenomenon hit? So you should never ask a lady her age, but <laughs> um, I am 27. And so when the Beanie Baby craze hit, I was, you know, 10 or so, 9, 10. Were you into it? Not really. You know, my main memory of it at the time, I was very into, I was a total nerd. I was very into like antiques and old books and that kind of thing. And my mother and I went to this flea market every weekend called Dick and Ellie's on Cape Cod where I grew up. And, you know, I'd never heard of Beanie Babies. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Dick and Ellie's, this flea market, became like 40% Beanie Baby dealers. Um, I mean, it was, you know, it went from being no Beanie Baby dealers to being like 30 Beanie Baby dealers at every flea market. And that lasted a couple of years and then they were gone. <laughs> And you remember that from when you were a kid. I do. No, that is my vivid memory of Beanie Babies. It was that. And I, I remember them talking, these dealers, they're wearing fanny packs and visors and talking really excitedly about the fluctuations in the secondary market and how, you know, this one that they just bought for $5 was now worth 50 and this one they just sold for 50 was now worth 40 and, you know, kind of, kind of following the gyrations in the market in much the same way that people were following the gyrations in, in the internet stocks at the time. So with all that in mind, I guess, how did you come to write a book about Beanie Babies? <laughs> so I, I went to college at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and I graduated in 2011, and then I think my junior or senior year, I can't remember which at the moment, um, I, I, I used to go to this auction house called Kimball's Auction that was in Amherst, and I went there one day and for the preview before the sale, and sitting at the back of the room were like a, a few Rubbermaid containers full of Beanie Babies, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Beanie Babies. Can I and back up here? What is an auction house? There's still such a thing as auction houses in the year 2009? Uh, yeah, it's kind of tragic. This, this, was a, this was a fun one. I, I loved it. It's still there. Um, but, but, but yeah, you know, they sell antiques, estates. Via auction, though? Yes, via auction. Every Sunday or whatever, people show up, and there's like a guy who talks fast and the whole thing? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of sticky, a little anachronistic, but, but I liked it. Um, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. So, so I was there, and there were all these Rubbermaid containers full of Beanie Babies that were being sold as, as one lot. And um, what was more interesting than the Beanie Babies themselves was uh, there were all these checklists and price guides and spreadsheets of how many this person who had assembled this collection, who, who had probably died, um, had. And they, were, they all had, like, little plastic tag protectors around the heart tags. Some of the bears oh, wow. were loose these Lucite cases, and the whole lot sold for, I think, like $100 or something. You know, when, it, when at the height of it, it probably would have been worth, you know, $20,000. Um, and, and I got home from that and was sort of just Googling them and realized, you know, you'd find stories that there had been this craze for Beanie Babies, but nothing really of any kind of depth other than this stat, two stats, really, that, 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 that made this leap out for me. One was that in the early days of eBay, Beanie Babies were 10% of eBay sales. That floored me. I had no idea about that. 
And the second stat was that the guy who created them was worth about $2 billion, um, all of it from Beanie Babies. Um, and, and I never would have guessed that it had been that big. So that, that was really what got me intrigued by it. How did you, once you were intrigued and you decided you were going to write the book, how do you research something like this? Yeah, so there were, there were these collector magazines um, that were kind of my jumping off point just to find people to talk to. So there was a magazine called Mary Best Beanie World that was this price guide and market analysis magazine that came out every month published by this soccer mom. And it, it was, I think, at a $5.499 cover price. And it had paid circulation of over a million copies a month in 1998. So I bought all these magazines, and, and I would just sort of find people who were, who were mentioned in them or who had advertised in them, and I would you know, go, go on you know, Accurant, which is a you know, people-finding database, and I would call them up and ask them about it. And that was, that was kind of how I, got, how I got started on it. But the thing I'll never forget um, in, in terms of what, what made me think this would, this would work was the first person I called was a woman named Sally Whiney who had been a designer for Ty. And I, I reached out to her, I think, on Facebook, and I sent her a message saying I was thinking about trying to do a book on the Beanie Baby craze, and, you know, could she talk to me? And she wrote back with her number and said, time to call. I called, her husband picked up, and I told her who I was, and I'm named Zach Bissonette. And he cut me out and he said, oh, you're the one calling about the Beanie Babies. I'm so glad someone's calling. Um, Ty Warner, who was the guy who created them, ruined our life. And I'm so glad someone wants to tell the story. Um, and so that was kind of like an intriguing sort of sort of mystery about like how did how did this woman come to see it that way? And and, and it kind of became a, a theme of the book that kind of emerged was that in general um, the being baby thing ended really really badly for everyone involved. It, it's a story of of a lot of sort of sad endings and, and disappointment. Yeah, it's I mean the cover of the book. It's a great cover of the book too. It's. Uh... The, there's like a beanie baby shrouded in darkness and even though I focus on the phrase the beanie baby bubble which I just said again um, the subtitle is mass delusion and the dark side of cute it is a pretty dark book I mean um, the, when you called people and you wanted to talk about beanie babies was like bitterness sort of the theme or was anyone not wanting to talk about it? were people anxious oh yeah about no it? There, were, there were a lot of people I mean it, it was funny to me because you know the book kind of has these two sides to it one is the story of the people who made and lost and mostly lost, you know, a lot of money doing something that, that especially with hindsight was really, really stupid. Um, you know, people, I, I, you know, I talked to people who lost, you know, six figure sums hoarding these beanie babies thinking they were going to pay for their kids college and that kind of thing. So that was part of the story. And then the other half of the story is the kind of rags to riches story of this, you know, kind of sad eccentric guy, Ty Warner, who, you know, came from nothing and, and created them and became spectacularly rich. And, you know, what was interesting to me was that, you know, he's very, very litigious. Um, I think most people I talked to would describe him as paranoid. Um, and, and, you know, everyone who ever worked for him had these confidentiality agreements that were very, very tight in terms of, you know, that were that, that, that prohibited them from talking to people. Um, I didn't have much trouble getting people, including his sister, who, who he's basically estranged from to talk about him and and that it, it was almost harder um, to get people to go on the record about money they'd lost on stuffed animals. It's embarrassing, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, before we get too much further, I, I got to know: is there anything you collect? Is there? Is do you have a beanie baby in your life? I, I, I mean, I think it's um, it's impossible to devote this much time to trying to understand other people's obsessions 
without some of that obsession rubbing off on, on yourself, um, which is a sort of long sort of preamble to say, yes, I do have a lot of, a lot of Beanie Babies now. I, I didn't before, but I think in the course of researching and trying to understand it, I think they, it, it, the appeal of them does kind of rub off on you. Um, other than Beanie Babies, I collect, it's really, really weird, I collect Pericomo memorabilia. That is not what I was expecting you to say. That is indeed really weird. Yeah, no, I've been obsessed with him since like sixth grade. And there is one guy who has a better collection than I have. I actually know who he is. Um, But I have signed record contracts, um, glasses from his golf tournament he did in the 1960s, um, all kinds of weird stuff. Why Perry Como? (laughs) I just think he's very, very underrated and spectacular and better than Frank Sinatra. It's an interesting thing to collect because apparently there's someone else doing it, but it's not a very crowded field. Like, you could realistically, it sounds like you have indeed become one of the world's foremost Perry Como collectors. Yes, and it's it's a a terrible investment um, (laughs) because... See, because the nature of it, it's like when you're buying stuff on eBay, you know, something, something might have a starting bid of $5 and, you know, and it might sell for $65 if it's really rare before this other guy or me outbid each other. But if I wanted to sell, it would only sell for $5 because I'm the only other, I'm the only other person driving right. up the price. That's funny. That's <laughs> funny. Um, you, you said that you eventually got into Beanie Babies and you learned to love the, you saw the appeal of them. What made Beanie Babies so special? And, like, what, I guess, what started to inflate these bub- this bubble? Was it that the toys themselves were so special, or was it marketing, or was it timing? A, a lot of things sort of accidentally coinciding with, e- with each other. So, um, you know, he created them in 1994, Ty did. Um, and his, his initial idea with them was that he felt that there wasn't really anything in stores for kids priced at $5 that wasn't kind of plastic and junky. And he wanted to create something that was $5, but it was also sort of nice, nicely made thick fabric, that kind of thing. And so that, that in a lot of ways dictated the size of them, you know, that to get them at $5, they had to be pretty small. And, um, so we introduced these in 1994. He was very enthusiastic about them. I talked to his girlfriend at the time, daughter who, who was I think eight years old and she remembered him coming home with the prototype for, for Legs the Frog and, and tossing it to her and saying it's so much fun to play with and see the plop when you drop it. He had, he had a very sort of tactile, visceral um, relationship to the, to the animals that he, he was creating. Right. He wasn't just like some businessman who was like, I see no. an opportunity with toys. Like he was no, into toys. No, not at all. No, yeah. these were his life. I mean, the, trying to create the perfect stuffed animal was kind of the driving force of, of his life. Um, still is, actually, believe it or not. Um, and so they launched in 1994. No one really cared about them at first. and But Ty, I think, believed in them enough that he, that he continued introducing them and making new ones. And really beginning in early 1995 to mid-1995, um, a relatively small group of like soccer moms in Chicago started to like them because the company was based in suburban Chicago. And so in suburban Chicago, they had a lot of retailers who stocked them. And these women decided that they wanted to assemble complete sets. And they realized that was really hard to do because Ty, and this went to the kind of obsessive attention to detail that he had, he'd release a product and then decide he didn't like it. And so he would change the design on it. So he released Peanut the Elephant originally in this royal blue color and shipped a few thousand of those. Then he decided that he didn't like the royal blue color and that it should be light blue, that that would be cuter and more appealing to children. So he stopped making the royal blue 
No one cared at the time because these were not popular. But as these first collectors started to try to assemble complete sets, they would like once in a while run into one of these Peanut the World Blue Elephants and be like, well, what the hell is that? They'd never seen it before. And because they were rare, there sort of started to be this kind of mini sort of market among or a tiny group of people in suburban Chicago who all knew each other. Um, and that was really the beginning of, of sort of prices above retail being paid for them. And then a few of these women who were kind of entrepreneurial just realized that because all of the collectors were in suburban Chicago, if you went outside of suburban Chicago, you could still get some of the rare ones and then sell them to people in suburban Chicago and sort of this arbitrage trade. And so these women started calling toy and gift and hospital gift shops all over the country, racking up like $1,000 a month phone bills just asking about rare Beanie Babies and kind of their act of doing that kind of started to spread this thing. And, and then that's, uh, there's a lot of other things to it, but that's sort of the short intro to how it, how it started to get nuts. So it's all those things. Was there a tipping point where it went from, you know, being a Chicago soccer mom thing to a national phenomenon that took over your local flea market? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were, there were a couple of them. But one of them certainly was um, the Teeny Beanies thing, which you may remember when McDonald's did, did a giveaway with them. And it was I don't bi- remember. I, I, I got to tell you, I, I actually have very little rec. I mean, I definitely Good. was aware it was happening, but I, yeah, I've but never not, owned yeah. the Beanie Baby. I yeah. guess I do kind of remember Teeny. I mean, what? so what is it? Tell me about it. No, so there were, the, there were these mini versions of Beanie Babies that McDonald's gave away in, in, in Happy Meals. And people hoarded them like crazy. You know, people would go through and buy, you know, 200 Happy Meals and throw out the food. And it was sort of this this media sensation around around this thing happening. And it, I, I remember talking to someone who had, who had worked at McDonald's corporate, and I, and I asked her about the um, the, the teeny meetings craze, and she said that to this day, when she sees sort of company reunions and that kind of thing. When she runs into former employees, all she has to do is say teeny beanie babies. And they say, just shoot me because it, I mean, it, it, it overwhelmed the stores with these lunatics trying to get these animals that they thought were going to make them rich. Um, and you know, in the beginning, beanie babies were only sold through, I mean, and, and really through the end of the craze were only sold through local mom and pop gift shops and toy shops. They were not sold through chains at all. And, and, and Ty felt very strongly that that was the way to keep a certain certain cachet to it. And at first, he didn't want to do the McDonald's thing because he thought it would kind of hurt that cachet. But they, but they were able to convince him that by getting them into McDonald's locations, he would get them in front of people who didn't normally go to these gift shops and would drive them into the gift shops. And that's kind of what happened. So, I mean, in 1997, their sales went you know to well over a billion dollars. Do you think the cachet for him was money and he just like wanted to have a hot toy that people are paying a lot for or was it uh was it more of a creative goal and he really like the the hotness of it was part of what made the toy so exciting it's a great question i think it was i think it was both i mean look he's a greedy guy i think no no one who's come into contact with him would dispute that but he also had this incredible sort of obsessive attention to detail, there was one employee who remembered, and this was this was just a few years ago after he was a billionaire, you know, which he still is, and, and owned all these hotels. Um, it was someone who had worked there for him for years, and she remembered getting a call at her desk. You know, Ty wants to see you in his office, and she and she went into his office, and he was sitting there with this um, beanie baby that was I think it was going to be named Pearl, and it was this kind of pearl color, and he was looking at the beanie baby. 
And he said to her, give me your earrings. And she was wearing pearl earrings, which Ty knew that she wore pearl earrings. So she took off the earrings, handed them to him. He held the earrings up to the light next to the beanie baby and concluded that the shade on the bear wasn't quite pearl. It was really, really close, but it wasn't quite right. And so he scribbled a note to send it back to the factory to make the color more pearl-like. And so I think, you know, it would be hard to argue that that was sort of, you know, was the bear going to sell more, you know, more copies because it was, you know, precisely pearl? No, I, I don't think you could say that. I think it was a creative sort of artistic vision. Yeah, I mean, say what you will about him, but I get the impression from reading your book that uh, this was a man that cared very much about creating quality toys. Very much so, yeah. Um, I mean, there was, you know, his girlfriend who was there when he started the company remembered, you know, they would just be there late into the night and she would be trying to get home and he would just be going around and around trying to ask her what way she thought the ribbon on a bear should be tied. Um, And she would say, oh, well, and he would say, what about this? What about this? And then when she thought he'd finally figured it out, he would say, okay, but what if we made the ribbon purple instead of pink? And she'd be like, oh, fuck, because then they would have to go through the entire sort of litany of questions again now that they had changed the color. So there was, I mean, absolutely someone who really cared about the detail. You know, the reason I picked up your book in the first place is someone recommended it to me because I love stories about kind of early internet, you know, um, yeah. sort of pre-2000 internet. One of my favorite topics is that Wild West internet. Yeah. Uh, how much of Beanie Mania is the Beanie Baby bubble, if you will, is related to the rise of the internet. Like, could it have happened in the 80s? No, and I think it, it, to your point about the Wild West days of the internet, it, it kind of relied on two things. One was you needed the internet. Ty was one of the first, really the first toy company to use the internet to aggressively market direct to consumer. I mean, they, they had they had a website for Beanie Babies before there was one for Barbie or Hot Wheels, um, and those are much bigger companies. That, you know, theoretically, I think you would you would think would have been more savvy, but but little little Ty out, out in Oakbrook, Illinois, with a, it was a, an employee of his, an hourly employee, Lena Trevetti, who had the idea to create a website for them and the idea to announce which pieces were going to be discontinued on the website with these special shockwave, I think it was, animations. Um, and, and people would stay up late at night waiting to see which pieces were going to be retired so they could then run into the stores and, and buy them before other people did and then sell them on eBay for more money. And there was there was a message board on the Thai website where you know people would trade Beanie Babies with each other, and there were you know thousands of messages per hour just going back and forth between these collectors. So certainly the sort of it was kind of the one of the first, I would say probably the first viral internet craze. And I think so it, it needed the internet, but not only did it need the internet, it needed the newness of the internet, which made this seem so much more exotic and interesting than it would today. Someone's just asking me, you know, could something like this happen? Again, you know, with something, and I think the answer is no, because not the same way, certainly, um, because the Beanie Baby trading online thing really, really seemed exciting at a time when it was the first thing that people were trading online. It was 10% of eBay sales. It was really sort of middle America's introduction to the internet. If you go back and look at trade, you know, magazine stories from 1996, 1997, there was a lot of concern that computer adoption was and internet access were obviously going really quickly. E-commerce use was not. Most people were buying computers and didn't really see any need to, to buy things online. And then you had Beanie Babies, which were small, easy to ship, had prices that fluctuated 
wildly. And they were sort of tailor-made almost for, for the for the new site eBay in a way that, you know, with other things, you know, why would you buy that online? You wouldn't. Um, so, so the scarcity and the, and the rapidly fluctuating prices kind of made Beanie Babies a perfect first thing for the internet. When you talk about how Beanie Babies were 10% of eBay's sales in the early days, would, would, would eBay – I mean eBay is such an, a perfect idea for the internet. It's hard to imagine. But would eBay exist without Beanie Babies? Was it like critical to getting it off the ground? No, I mean Meg Whitman has said that it was. Um, I think it's a, it's a little bit hard to kind of calculate that alternate history, right? Like, she's like, the like, CEO what, of eBay, correct? She, she was, yeah. She, she I mean, was. at the time, she's the Hewlett Packard now. But, but yes, no, she has absolutely said unequivocally that, that, that it was built on Beanie Babies. Um, so <laughs> she would be a better authority on that than I would. One of, the, uh, one of my favorite little details in your book, when you're talking about how the Beanie Babies would update the website, uh, and like the, they were ri- they were written in the voice of the yeah. Beanie Babies, right? Like the and yeah. incl- and this was all messaging, including messaging from the legal team. Like the Beanie Babies would sign online and be like, "Hey, our friends at the legal team have a message yeah. for you." Yeah, no. And what, what was funny to me was, um, I mean, there, there was a lot of stuff like that. Like people would write in and say, you know, like retailers would write in buyers for big big chains that wanted to sell Beanie Babies. And they would say, you know, we want, you know, we wanted to place an order, but we can't seem to get anyone to. And they would get a, an email back written by a beanie baby that would say, you know, big stores are scary. The high ceilings. We like little stores. <laughs> That's so silly. I love it's like hiding crazy. behind the beanie, the adorable beanie babies, just to get a sense of how big beanie baby bubble grew. How does yeah. this compare to something like Furbies or Tamagotchi or Pogs or something like that? Like. It's it's an order of magnitude bigger, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, twenty times bigger than Pogs. Whoa, twenty times bigger than Pogs! My mind explodes. I know, crazy. <laughs> I, I can't know. even fathom such a thing. The, the the other thing that makes it, uh, you know, and not not to oversell my own book, but 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 so much more interesting than those is that by the height of it, Beanie Babies were sort of only nominally a toy. I mean, by nineteen ninety eight, well over seventy percent of the demand was from people who were buying these and sticking them in Rubbermaid bins, thinking they were going to get rich from them. Um, Furby was never like that. Furby was a hot, gotta-have toy that you wanted for your kid because all the other kids had them. And there really wasn't a speculative element to, to Furby. It was just a toy. Beanie Babies were not a toy. Beanie Babies started as a toy. Um, but by the end of it, they'd become, I think, both so much more than a toy and so much less than a toy. When you look at other bubbles throughout history, non-Beanie Baby bubbles... Uh, is the Beanie Baby bubble unique, or is it just another bubble? Uh, it's kind of the, 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 the craziest of them, the one that, that seems to lack sort of any particular grounding in reality. The, the, the one, and I think what I like about it is that it, it is the one that is so absurd that it kind of illustrates the absurdity of all the other ones, because it's, I mean, what kind of drew me to this topic in the first place in some ways was... To be able to explain, you know, because I, I came to this sort of right in the wake of, of the real estate crash, and that if you want to explain the real estate crash, you have to talk about things like, you know, collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps and subprime mortgages and liar loans and, and all that kind of thing. This kind of technical stuff, but really the sort of psychology and what John Maynard Keynes called the, the animal spirits that, that were driving all these other bubbles. I think really are not substantively different from what drove Beanie Babies. Which, what's, a, what's another bubble? 
like historic these because this is a historic thing, right? Or there's a story. Right. No, I mean the, the one everyone always talks about is the tulip craze in in the 1630s in Holland. That one's interesting because it didn't really happen anywhere to, to anywhere near the extent that that sort of later historians claim it did. There was a a great book from someone at Princeton a couple of years ago who kind of debunked a, a lot of the mythology around that. Right. But um, I mean, certainly the internet stock bubble. Um, the, the nifty 50 stocks in the 1960s, um, you know, the, ra- the railroad bubble. Um, I mean, there, there have been bubbles in all kinds of things. And I, I think really what it is is that it's something captures a small group of people's imagination. Then more people get in and that drives up the prices and other people are lured in by witnessing this phenomenon of rising prices. And it's kind of a gambler's rush. Um, and, and I think that's really what separates bubbles from from sort of other investments, even bad investments that in hindsight look like them. But with a bubble, the demand is driven by people looking at the prices having risen and thinking, oh, prices have gone up, therefore they will continue to go up. And I think that that's really at at its core, the the dynamic that that defines a bubble as opposed to other things. It's funny when we talk about this because we almost talk about it like it's the madness of the Salem witch trial and just like, what were they thinking? These people are crazy. But it was only 20 years ago. It was so recent. It it was. It's funny. I mean, I've read quite a few things on the Salem witch trials. I mean, those kind of mass panics always interest me. Um, the Salem Witch Trials is a great one. There's a great book I read by Dorothy Rabinowitz called No Crueler Tyrannies that's about the, um, I don't know if you remember this, but there was, in the 80s, there was this really weird um, mass sort of moral panic about the notion of, of child molestation at preschools. And a lot of innocent people were, were convicted of crimes that didn't happen. And then sort of afterwards, everyone realized there was a lot of media hype and excitement. And then people realized that, that this was really not the sort of crisis that they've been led to believe. It was very sad. So, so the, the way in which sort of feeding frenzies can develop is really interesting. Um, I, th- I think, you know, th- there's a line from George Carlin that, you know, that I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but, you know, that the most interesting thing you can do with your mind is lose it. Um, and I think what's even more interesting than people going insane on their own, which is sad but can be interesting, is when, large groups of people go totally nuts in the same way all at once. That, to me, is interesting. Well, obviously, their logic, these Beanie Baby enthusiasts, uh, these collectors, uh, was flawed. But help me understand, uh, help me avoid going, joining some sort of group madness in the future. Like, what exactly were they not seeing that they should have been seeing? So the, the, the biggest fallacy of it was that, you know, in the beginning when Ty was producing Beanie Babies in really limited quantities because they weren't selling, you know, because he was a tiny company at the time, a couple million dollars a year in sales. And when they started to catch on, these early Beanie Babies like Humphrey the Camel, Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant, that only a few thousand had ever been produced. Those started selling for thousands of dollars. You know, I think Peanut at one time was worth five or six thousand dollars. Humphrey was worth, you know, maybe seven thousand or four thousand. I don't really, you know, um, it, it varied obviously. But um, and a lot of people made the kind of erroneous extrapolation that because these Beanie Babies that had been selling for five dollars in nineteen ninety five were worth four thousand dollars in nineteen ninety eight that therefore some of the new Beanie Babies being produced in 1998 might be worth a lot of money in 2000. And, and the difference was that, you know, between 1994 and 1998, Ty's sales went from, 
from probably $12 million a year to about about $1.4 billion a year. The new Beanie Babies were being produced in enormous quantities. I mean, they were, you know, I've seen pictures from, from the factory. I mean, just, it's, I mean, they were coming over, you know, by the container from, from China, and they just weren't rare. One of the ways that Ty was able to mask how rare they are was that, and this went to his sort of original thing about not wanting to be in big box stores, you would never go into a store and see a huge stack of Beanie Babies because he would only ship each store 12 per month of each style, and they would sell those and they'd be gone. And the way he got around that and was still to make money was that he didn't sell to Walmart or Target. He only sold to an enormous number of smaller stores. People didn't realize how many stores that it was. I feel like there's things from the 50s and earlier collectibles, toys, comic books that really are valuable and you can, you know, have uh, great value in the collector's market. But at some point we became aware that was happening and everyone just started collecting anything. And potentially nothing is ever going to be worth any money ever, ever again because like uh, or nothing we expect to be worth money will be worth money. No, I mean, that's no, you're you're exactly right. I mean, it it was sort of the, the fact that people think that something that's being made now will end up being worth a lot of money is kind of a guarantee that it won't be. Right, um, right. Because people save them. I mean, look, my dad um, was a very sort of meticulous, at the time, he's not now, um, sort of collector and organizer of things. My dad was born in 1948, and he saved, in beautiful condition, in all these shoeboxes, thousands of his baseball cards from the 1950s. Very, 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 very few people did that. Most people put them in the, in the spokes of their bicycles and that kind of thing. And so the, the result was that his collection was worth many thousands of dollars by, by the 1990s. Um, in the 1980s, on the other hand, people thought that baseball cards were, were an investment. And so people saved you know, the entire cases of packs of cards, thinking that these would go up in value. And, of course, because so many people saved them, they were guaranteed not to. And now baseball cards in the 80s are not worth anything at all. Right, right. So is the 80s when that happened, when we sort of started collecting things and, you know, people became aware that old worthless crap might one day be worth something? Yeah. I mean, basically, I think if you had to, if you had to peg it, I would say it's, um, I would say the 80s is a really good, good peg for that. It's an I never thought of it that way, but you're totally right about that. Um, a, a little bit 70s, 60s, um, but you know the 80s was kind of the golden age of the. You're probably too young to remember this, but um, I'm older than you. Hold on, I'm older than you. I, no, but I mean we both are. But you haven't researched it. Um, yeah, that's we're, true. We're, that's true. We're, we're both too young to remember it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's but, what I wanted. To, that's what I wanted to hear. There, there's like the, the you know the Bradford Exchange and the Franklin Mint, which were mass producing. Oh these yeah, I thought that was so interesting in your book because I, I do know the Franklin Mint, and like I think most people, I think, have some vague awareness of it from TV. I've seen right. it, I've seen it a thousand times, but I've never actually thought about what the hell it is, and I thought that was so interesting. Can you briefly explain you, what the Franklin Mint actually, where it came I mean, from, what it actually is? It's this guy who was nice enough to to let me interview him for the book, Joseph Sagel, who was a a Wharton grad student. Um, came up with this idea, and I'll, I'll truncate this story quite, quite a bit just to, to avoid boring people. Um, but basically, to, to manufacture stuff and market the hell out of it, telling people it was rare and limited edition, and to charge just insane prices for it, and sort of create this brand around it being 
sort of a treasure and, and pretending like it was an antique and it, and it worked and he made hundreds of millions of dollars and, and uh, you know, they, they, they did these Norman Rockwell plates and all this pewter stuff. Um, you know, and then there were other brands, Precious Moments, that, that kind of grew out of that uh, of that industry. And ultimately, I think it kind of crescendoed with Beanie Babies. Right. Um, you know, which in a way also killed it. Um, and, and the internet killed it, killed this industry too. And, and, and the reason is that, you know, before eBay, markets were pretty inefficient for collectibles and, and antiques and that kind of thing. You would, you know, if you wanted something, you would go find like a dealer and he would kind of call around and see if he could find what you were looking for. And then he would tell you how much it was. And you wouldn't really have a great idea whether that was a, a good price for something. Once eBay happened, and you can do this now, you, know, you just type in anything and you'll find 50 of it. And people, I think there was a realization that things that people had thought were rare actually weren't so rare after all. And the, and the jig was up. And that, that entire industry imploded. Um, you know, at one time, that collectibles industry was a very, very big business, and it is basically gone. So he was just like artificially like, uh, these plates are collectibles now, and just declared they're going to be worth money someday, so you're, you better yeah. buy them, and it worked. It's crazy. Yeah, that, that's what's so insane about me. I mean, it's like, you know, because you, you read through the sort of explanation of what this business model is, and it doesn't seem brilliant. It seems like, well, you're assuming that people are really stupid. And no, they weren't. Um, and I, I would not have, I would not have made that assumption, but, but the, the gullibility of consumers was something that they really tapped into. And, and I think understood better than I, than I would have certainly. What is the most valuable at its peak? What, what was the most valuable Beanie Baby? Was it the Princess Die one? The Princess Die one is one I like when, when you talk about the Beanie Baby phenomenon, I, I remember the Princess Die moment. Yeah, no, I, I actually know a guy who bought, um, a dealer who who bought a thousand princess dies in England with a cashier's check for a hundred thousand dollars, but but no, I mean the princess die was was a lot of hype and excitement, but it, it was new, the most valuable one because it was the rarest was the peanut the royal blue elephant, um, which was consistently worth at the time five thousand dollars. That one actually, and this is kind of goes to you know that one's still worth a few hundred mm-hmm. um, because it's so rare. It's one of the only ones that, that really is still of any value at all. Why was Princess Di's hype never up to its uh, why was that just not in line with its value? Was it because it was the tail end of the phenomenon? Yeah, I mean it was 1997 it was, I, you know there was a lot of media attention because it, you know it was done to commemorate her, her life and um, I mean, just a, he, he, they just produced enough of them to, to, to satiate the demand. And, and they, with that one, it's a little, a little wonky. But they, they shipped a very small number of them at first. And so people were like, oh, my God, I can't get these. I'll pay hundreds of dollars for it. And then a few months later, they, they basically flooded the market with it. Do you have any idea what was the most anyone ever actually pocketed from a Beanie Baby sale, like the record-setting Beanie sale, which will probably stand for the rest of time? Yeah, that, that, that's a good, you know, that, that, that's a Cal Ripken streak. That's a record that will never be broken. Um, yeah, you know, I think, you know, there were some charity ones, if you count those, that I think sold for like $12,000. But I don't know that you would count those because those were like, you know, for charity auctions where things sell. I think probably, you know, in the $7,000 range, which people paid for, for mint, mint peanuts. Um, but the sheer number of them that were selling for, you know, 500 and 700 is, I think, really kind of incredible. Right, right. Did you talk to anyone who managed to escape the bubble and get out while the getting was good and, you know, actually paid for their kids' college with this stuff? Yeah, no, there was, there was a guy, Brian Wallows. He started a site called Wallows.com. He was 
probably the biggest of the secondary market dealers. He had like 30 employees, a big warehouse, and he did all these tons of advertising and, and web stuff. And he made millions of dollars. And he lost a lot of it on the way down um, because he got stuck with inventory that he'd, that he'd bought you know, at the height of the market. And he you know, hadn't taken all his money off the table. But he, 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 he made enough to um, start a business called Benchwarmer that he still has, which they do trading cards featuring um, scantily clad models. He's living his dream. He is. And what was funny was I got... I had referred to them as, I think, porn stars in the book. And I got an email from him, and, you know, and, then, the, and then I think I called him back, and I felt bad that he was upset, and he was saying, you know, porn is penetration. They are beautiful women. They're not porn stars. You're being sensationalistic, which, honestly, it's a distinction I had never really necessarily thought of. I looked at the cards, thought they were porn stars. So anyway, sorry, Brian. Um, but nice guy. <laughs> but, even, but even he made his money not in purely arbitraging Beanie Babies, but actually like as in creating a platform, it sounds like. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, no. And it, I mean, the thing with Beanie Babies and what what's so interesting about the sort of market dynamic of it is, you know, if you look at the volume on eBay, which was by far the biggest of the secondary market sites for Beanie Babies, you know, they were probably doing, I think at the height, maybe $500,000 a month in Beanie Baby sales. Well, you know, Ty was shipping, you know, like $100 million a month in Beanie Babies. The secondary market was never really that big at all relative to the number of Beanie Babies that were being sold. What it was was it was sort of incredible and big enough to spread this story that drove people to hoard Beanie Babies that they were buying for $5 each. So most people never sold a Beanie Baby for a lot of money or even paid a ton of money for a Beanie Baby. Most people were lured in by these stories of other people paying hundreds of dollars for them. And so they bought hundreds of them for $5 each, stuck them in a closet, and now they're worth nothing. Um, so that was kind of the dynamic. I take no joy in this, and I almost don't want to ask, but is there like, you know, as a cautionary tale, and, you know, to, to the point this is a serious, terrible thing that happened to some people, was there like a worst horror story you heard um, from someone who really lost it all on Beanie Babies? Oh, God, there was, there was one that was so horrible I didn't put it in the book. Um, but, um, I mean, there was a soap opera star who lost his kids' six-figure college funds on them um, and st- still has them, and they're worthless. Um, and I think his I think his kid actually did end up borrowing for college. Have you ever seen that image online of uh, the couple who is? I'm sure yeah. there's no way you haven't seen after no, having course, literally yeah. written a book about Beanie Babies. There's no way. You no, I, I almost put it in the book and didn't. So there's a couple who is being divorced, and I guess it's like 1995 or something. And they are. It's actually definitely 1995 based on the fashion in the picture. So this couple in court, and they're dividing their Beanie Babies up in in divorce court. And it's just like two adults on the ground in front of a pile of Beanie Babies. And I encourage you, if you are near a computer, to look this image up because it is a r- incredible photograph. Like, it's really striking to see these adults yeah. who are in divorce course, like, divorce court, probably, like, one of the most mature adult f- experiences in life. Uh, and they're, they look like children standing over this pile of toys. Would you know the backstory or, or that A picture? little bit. I mean, I, I read through, you know, just the media reports time that neither of them would talk to me for the book. I did reach out to them. Um, I don't really blame them. Um, it's a, it could but, be incredibly embarrassing to be in that photograph. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish them well. No, the, the case that, that I, I love that, that, that 
there was a, a, a lawsuit that actually went to the Iowa State Supreme Court where um, this guy was tired of his wife's Beanie Baby collection because he was spending so much money and time on them. Um, and so he decided that he was going to um, burn her Beanie Babies. So he, he, he put them all in like a, a big you know, pile in the backyard um, and lit a match. And as he put it in a deposition in the civil case, it flared up a lot faster than I thought it was going to. <laughs> and he b- burned down the house. Oh, my God. Beanie Babies, and this is probably not right because they're a children's toy, but I guess they do seem fairly flammable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, apparently more so than he than he had necessarily thought. But what was funny was that when he was, you know, being questioned about it, I think by the by the police, um, he said, you know what, hold on, I, I, I'm going to have it in a second. So th- this is what he said when they asked him about the fire. He said, quote, she had Beanie Babies everywhere, and I was sick of them sons of bitches, and I decided I was going to barbecue them. I had a big brush pile that I was going to burn outside, and I decided I was going to get all her Beanie Babies and take them out and barbecue the sons of bitches and went to get the charcoal lighter. It flared up a lot faster than I thought it was going to. That sounds more like her older brother than her wife, her husband. Yeah, yeah what I thought was weird about it was the, I thought it captured perfectly the kind of anthropomorphous, uh, he refers repeatedly to Beanie Babies as sons right. of bitches. Uh, but but yeah, and so what what happened was that the the insurer denied his claim for a hundred her claim because she owned the house. They denied her claim for a hundred thousand dollars in damage to the home because it was her house and, and and he did the fire, and it went to the Supreme Court. and And the judge wrote in his ruling that one hundred and fifty Beanie Babies and Buddies perished in the fire. Not surprisingly, Robert and Ramona later divorced. Unquote. Not surprising. I mean, thank so. God she had the Beanie Baby collection because this sounds like. He was probably going to light a fire either way. Like, at least it gave him something, something yeah, healthy to know, burn. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, no, I, I don't to think. to blame at the Beanie Babies you know, the, on this one. No, I think the, the Beanie Babies were kind of an outlet for people with a predisposition toward mental health problems, you know, as, as opposed to being, you know, t- I, I think they took, you know, people who were hanging on by a thread um, and, and drove them to madness. Right, right. Did you hear in your research uh, a, like a story about the lengths that people would go to to obtain Beanie Babies, like that chase, like a craziest Beanie Baby chase story? There was a woman who had slammed her toddler's head in the door of a um, Hallmark store. I think she had to go to the hospital. Um, How is that going to get her a Beanie Baby? I think they, they, were, they were part of a rush, and she was trying to rush in to, to get in, um, I interviewed a guy in prison in West Virginia who murdered a coworker over a Beanie Baby debt. Was he at all like, you know, in retrospect, Beanie Babies? I guess it was pretty silly. <laughs> you know, the first thing he asked me was um, how to say this nicely. Um, he, I'm, I'm just trying to paint the scene a little bit. He, he looks like what you would expect a West Virginia guy who killed someone over a Beanie Baby debt would look like. Um, he had all these missing teeth, really weird yellow skin. I think maybe just from, from being indoors a lot because he's incarcerated. And, and the first thing he asked me was, um, so then Beanie Babies, are those still hot? Oh, my God. Yeah, and I was like, no, brother. Like, the one you killed someone over is worth a nickel, but that's oh okay. Oh, my God. Um, and live and learn. Right, right, right. 
Are Beanie Babies still popular today? I did go to the Thai website. They seem to be produced, sold still. Yeah, no, actually the Beanie Boo line, which if you go to the Thai website, those are really, with the big eyes, those are crazy popular. They're like the most popular plush shirt now. So he's had a huge comeback. They don't have the speculative component. The sales are, you know, probably, you know, 3% of what they were in the late 90s. It's a nice little business though. But... It is a great little business. Ty never went under. Like the company, surely the, sh- the sales shrank dramatically, but they're still here. They're still selling toys. I guess when did the bubble pop? When did the wheels come off this thing? Right around the turn of the millennium. What happened? Was there something that happened or did we collectively just wise up? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of that, that's an interesting question. I mean, the gist of it is like, you know, there, there was a cause and a reason that people will point to. On the other hand, this thing was inherently stupid and was not going to last forever. Um, but, but I mean, the gist of it is that, you know, that by 1999, kids weren't really into them anymore. It had been totally taken over by adults. You didn't really have that, that primary market. The only reason people wanted them was for investment. Um, they were being manufactured in huge quantities. And so in, in late 1999, Tide announced that all Beanie Babies were being retired um, and that he was canceling the line. Um and there was sort of a one-day rush of excitement. And then I think people just felt that it was sort of manipulative and, and didn't really believe him and, and didn't really, you know, that why would he cancel his hot product? And so then at the end of 1999, he announced that he was going to keep making them, that he had decided and changed his mind. And they came out with a new Millennium Collection at the beginning of 2000, and nobody cared, and that, that was, was it. That was pretty much it. And the, the price... And the prices plummeted, and, and yeah, I mean, it was all gone. And, and the stories that people remembered, you know, Mary Beth, the woman, the editor of the magazine, had a million copies a month, was, was being in an airport and seeing all of these recently retired Beanie Babies that were on sale two for five dollars, which was just unheard of. And she's like, oh my God, it's wow. over. And it was. You mentioned earlier that Ty, that designing that perfect toy is still the driving force of his life. Like, what other mountain does he have to climb? This is almost certainly, it's got to be the most popular stuffed animal, maybe even toy of all time, right? Yeah, no, I mean, no, it certainly is. Um, certainly in, terms of, in terms of unit sales, yeah. So, like, what, what, what is he still trying, what does he have left to prove? You know, I, God bless him, and, like, you know, I think you're still allowed to make toys and stuff, but it's just, like, does he feel like he still has something left to prove? I, no, I don't think it's left to prove. I think it's what he likes. I think he enjoys the creative process of it. Um, and then, you know, in his spare time, he owns, you know, a huge hotel empire. He owns the Four Seasons Hotel in New York. He owns the Four Seasons Hotel in Santa Barbara. Um, he just turned down, I think, a $970 million offer for the one in New York. Um, so he has his hotels and he has his animals. And that's all you need. That's all you need sometimes. You know, you somehow ended up not only with a book, but with a collection of Beanie Babies. I got to ask, what's your favorite Beanie Baby? My favorite Beanie Baby. Everyone who's in front of the computer needs to, needs to Google this. If you I'll type in Kaleidoscope. 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 Beanie Baby. See, what kind of animal is it for those that are not in front of a computer? It's a cat. It's a rainbow. I'm looking at Kaleidoscope the cat. It is pretty cool. Like, each, le- each leg and each arm seems to be, like, sort of a different fabric, a different pattern. It's pretty good looking. It's, it's an attractive stuffed animal. No, the, the, thing that, the thing that I remember, you know, my story, this one's a little bit personal, but um, Faith McGowan, who was, who was Ty's girlfriend, at the height of the craze, who was involved in the business with him, and they had broken up. She's kind of a sad person. She, she passed away while I was working on the book. But when I, 
but when I went to to visit her um, at her house, and she had this this one on display, the prototype of it in her bookcase. So I don't know. I, I just always think of it. Think of her. Well, the book is the Beanie Baby Bubble. I forget the subtitle because I'm so obsessed with the title. What's the subtitle again? Mass, Mass illusion, illusion and, and the Dark Side of Cute. So the Great Beanie Baby Bubble, Mass Illusion, and the Dark Side of Cute. You get it. You guys know how to get books. You can find this. You can find a book. Whenever I do radio interviews, people are like, you know, so where can people buy your book? You know, and I'm like, I, you know, Olympia Sports. Like, yeah. where, where do you I've think people I've made that mistake, it? and I've asked previous guests on the show who have written books, like, where to get the book. <laughs> and the answer is always the same. It's like, it's a book. Um, it's it was published it's like uh, it's a book you like i assure you you will find this book if you are interested in it. and i encourage you to do so uh it's really like i like i said i didn't pick it up because i have any history with beanie babies it just seemed like a really interesting quirky story from american history touched on the internet and like kind of uh, economics but at a very freakonomic type of level and i really enjoyed reading it and i encourage others to do the same thank you so much That is it for another episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. Thank you so much for listening, especially through what I must admit are some more audio recording issues. I assure you, we will have that sorted out in time for our next episode with David Michael Latt, co-founder of Asylum Studios. For those of you uh, near a phone or a computer, I would encourage you uh, to IMDB David Michael Latt or Asylum Studios. Look up uh, what they've done. David has produced almost 200 movies uh, with names like Mega Shark vs. Croctopus. I'm pretty sure I'm not mixing two of them up. I'm pretty sure that's one movie. Uh, what else? Android Cop. Um, but he's also made comedies and dramas, Snakes on a Train, the Transmorphers series, as well as uh, the Sharknado franchise. So a very, very deep filmography, and we are going to be talking about all of it. Here is a little preview. You can, this is something to think about as you IMDb, David. Uh, he's made nearly 200 movies with the Asylum Studios. None of them have lost money. He will explain how all that is possible on the next episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. You will know about it first if you follow me at Twitter, uh, Tumblr, Facebook, um, what else, YouTube. All these links are available at JeffRubinJeffRubinShow.com. I'll see you there, and I'll see you in two weeks. All right. Bye.